Tonight I'd like to speak about faith. And the way I'm going to give this talk, I'd like it to be kind of a tapestry of all of us weaving it together in, in the way that I mean that when I speak about certain things, I hope that you can align it with your own experience and see where you are in that particular area that I'm speaking about. So the title of this talk is Trusting Our Potential for Transformation. And this is Faith, Trusting Our Potential for Transformation. So all along in my own practice, I've continually asked myself, what is going to help me keep going, keep navigating, finding the skillful ways to navigate on this path of practice that I'm on, that we're all on, and generally navigating in the world with the sense that I have the skills to be able to face all the ups and downs of life and see them on the cushion, you know, in deep retreat, when there are profound, when there's much more profound clarity of what's going on when we're not so busy. How can I not give up on myself completely? I have a lot of faith in the Dharma, in the teachers that I have, but the faith in myself sometimes falls short. When things get really hard or I open to a place that I've never been before, because a lot of faith is opening to unknown territory. We need the faith to be able to do that. And sure, sometimes there are times we need to settle back a bit, take a break, you know, not try to push our pedal, pull our pedals open or dig so much that we open to territory that we're not yet ready for. So we learn to take a break. And that's not loss of faith in ourselves. That just means we have some skillful means to know to do that. There are so many conditions, that outer conditions that activate inner conditions within us that activate responses of uneasiness in us, of a feeling of helplessness, even here on the cushion or in our quiet walking uh, places, or even when we're busy in the midst of a line, when something comes upon us and it feels so difficult to open to. I don't know about you, but I feel destabilized a lot by losses in my life or by impending losses in my life, um, sorrow and grief, and even anticipatory grief for you know, just getting older and having people around me get older and um, you know what happens. There's old age, sickness, death. There's a lot of that that we're opening to when we get to a certain place in life and know that's inevitable. It's, it also help, happens when we're younger, but also not as much. Maybe we don't take it as seriously. So there's fear of the future for me, even though the past is, uh, the past years are much more uh, many years than future years. I might be able to have the, um, you know, honor to live and practice more. But we sense ourselves, or speaking for myself, I sense myself in this sea of vulnerability, in the sea of changing conditions. And we need a lot of faith to face that, to be able to stay steady and to navigate our the ship that's called this body and mind continuum of who we are. We really need to know how to touch into that inviolable quality of faith, mostly in ourselves, but we do have to know how to choose faith faithfully, people who are our teachers, learn how to have faith in the Dhamma, which we practice to see whether it's right for us, certain parts of it. But mostly it's faith in ourselves that we really need to um, discover, uncover, through our hardships, through our ability to stay steady when things are hard. 
always, um, I read this poem by David White. It's entitled Faith. And it does remind me of how it goes for me and a lot of people close to me that I know in the Dhamma. I want to write about faith. This is part of the poem. I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over the cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry. Let this then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. I love that image because it does remind me of sometimes it feels like I just have a tiny bit, just a tiny bit to keep going. You know, a sliver, just a sliver of faith like that moon. I'm remembering now once a time what was a very difficult time for me and I was reporting to two um, pretty stern, strict teachers and um, this was at IMS in Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I was um, really... It was very difficult. I wanted to go home. There was so much suffering in the body, so much suffering in the mind. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hold it together then. And I remembered that I was just in a puddle of tears on the floor. I just kind of collapsed. And I said, I'm going home. I can't take it anymore. I'm, I just um, give up. And they, the two were talking to one another in Burmese. One was a Nepalese monk and the other one was Burmese monk, Sedao Pandita. I didn't know what they were saying, but they had a little discussion. And at the end of the discussion, um, there were a few questions like, when does this happen? When do you get overwhelmed? When is it? Uh, when do these experiences of the body and the mind come to you? And I said, usually it's in my walking practice. It's very, very hard. Because a lot comes up in my walking practice. I think the movement loosens, loosens a lot of stuff for me. And um, they were. it seemed like they were perplexed. And uh, finally, the, the Nepalese um, monk translated. And he said... Um, when you get in this uh, situation, uh, want, we want you to slowly, slowly bend down and pull up your socks mindfully and then get up and continue to walk. <laughs> and I said, I thought to myself that this isn't right, but I did have faith in them, you know. <laughs> but it really, I think it was one of their first times to teach Westerners and... Westerners, I don't think, act like, uh, you know, where they're from, they don't fall on the floor and cry in a puddle and all things like that. So it was like, whoa, what is this? So they came up with something. But I, I, I have to say, until today when I'm walking and it's very difficult, I just remember them with a smile and I bend down and I pull up my socks and I just keep going. So anything will do, right, when you don't have faith in yourself. So I want to talk about how it's held in the Dhamma in a bigger way, but mostly accentuate faith in ourselves. So each one of us has come to be here on this path actually because you have some faith. You've come with some faith. And we're trying to do the best we can to use it, to remember it in our practice. Sometimes this faith is like a deep intuitive intelligence. And it's, a, it's faith because we remember maybe past times that we can do it. Or we remember that it's just this one little step, that's all. Sometimes that's all I could do. I used to stand in front of, say, a walking path and say, from here to the end of the path, just total mindfulness. Nothing else will get in the way. But, you know, it only took a half a step before that mind was gone. You know, it wasn't with 
anything at all, just wandering in samsara for a moment. So I started to see that what really helped was just to take one little step. And it's just this moment of the foot rising, moving, and touching the ground. And then the next moment. So it's little steps at a time. Also in my sitting practice, just one moment at a time. Not taking too big of a hunk. And so we have the actual experience to know that what helps us is to do that. So we have some intuitive knowledge that we can have faith in ourselves, even if it's just a bit at a time. We know that practice brings benefit. We've, uh, so many of you have been on a lot of retreats. Several of you here have been uh, just coming from the end of the six uh, weeks retreat at, in Barrie, Massachusetts, the end of the um, second half of the three-month course, and then joining this retreat. I mean, that's quite notable and um, quite admirable and wonderful that the conditions have come together for that to happen for you and you took the opportunity because it's not often that we can do that. So we see that our practice does bring benefit. It brings us back. We come back. People tell us, you know, uh, I, my kids have told me, I have four grown children, and they've told me different times that, Mom, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because you get better. You know? <laughs> so I, I see that, you know, we have that kind of... Um, uh, knowledge about ourselves and we get the feedback from others. My mother didn't know at all what I was doing. You know, she never knew till the day she died. And she just knew that I went to these retreats sometimes. She never even knew that I taught in, in these retreats. I went to these retreats sometimes and when I came back, you know, then I was more settled, more peaceful. She never said so much to me, but one time I heard her say to somebody else, um, your daughter is a very calm, peaceful person. And my mother said something like, yeah, she, she gets more calm and peaceful all the time. And I thought, oh, she's really recognizing that. I'm not always like that, by the way. I can be... Um, I don't know if this is a bad word in the Dharma Hall, but... Somebody gave me a great compliment recently and said I was a really badass teacher because I really just, you know, said it like it was sometimes. That was kind of a compliment to me. But. So we see changes in our own lives and it ripples out to all of our connections, to all of our relations. And we really understand that um, we do have some faith. We stay with it. That's why we're here. So we may express it in different ways, but we do have this common yearning. And I'm not talking about a wanting. You know, there's, there's beneficial ways where we yearn for something, uh, like yearning for peace. And that's, that's a beneficial kind of outreaching of the mind and heart to see where we can go on that path to be more peaceful. So this yearning that we all have is to deepen this inner peace that we have gotten in touch with. We're here because in some way, somewhere along the way, we've gotten in touch with that deep inner peace, even if it was just for a moment. And we want to be less reactive. We're yearning for that. Less reactive towards ourselves, less reactive in the world. So that no matter what stones are thrown to destabilize or discord our lives, what stones are thrown in the pond of our hearts and minds, we know that the inner ripples will soon quiet down just by being aware of the impermanence of it. It soon's quiet down and the stillness that we come to, even if it's for just moments, help us to see things with clarity see things with wisdom, and to have some space and time to touch in to that compassion that we need to be able to share what needs to be shared in the world, to take our stand, to be a voice of truth in the world, truth and compassion. 
So we have this common yearning, all of us, that are, we're here together, and this karmic conditioning for us to, conditions for us to come together. We want to be more at ease, to be more at ease with these unfolding moment-to-moment experiences that we have on, in these deep moments of the quietness of sitting, walking, being in our rooms, general activities, because we know we learn from that. We learn from the difficult, and we learn from the quiet times too. We're learning to relax, to have that receptive attitude so that we're not developing kind of unconsciously an avoidance or a resistance to what's happening. Because that goes into our karmic stream too. And it gets born again. We have to deal with it again and again and again. So we become more relaxed around conditions, inwardly, outwardly, more receptive so they can be known with simple awareness instead of an unknowing moment of aversion or attachment if it's pleasant. So we get in touch with the unwholesome and the wholesome as well. And we yearn to be free from those tenacious habit patterns. We're beginning to see them. Um, if you've come here just thinking that you'll be you know, more and more peaceful and it, it's just going to widen and broaden, I guess you've realized by now that that's not the case because what happens is that we get more and more clear, more and more mindful, and all those difficult experiences that are habit patterns within us, they rise to the surface and they're to be known by this clarity this clarity of mindful awareness. So that can feel so raw sometimes. That's why we need this faith and other skillful means also in order to stay with it on the path. So that yearning is a spiritual aspiration to go towards what is yet unknown. This is part of faith, to go towards what is yet unknown to venture beyond the known. And this can be really scary because maybe, perhaps, if you're like me, there are many habit patterns that keep coming up over and over again and I don't always really touch them with awareness. Don't always kind of let the clarity go there. There might be some resistance or avoidance or falling asleep around them. You know, like Manindra, I love the way Manindra G, my, one of my teachers, says, my path is not yet finished. So I'm able to say that. You know, my path is not yet finished, so these defilements still come up for me, these habit patterns of the mind. There's less reactivity to them. They, they're weakened to some extent, but they're still there. And I've had to learn a lot of skillful means to be with them. So venturing beyond the known doesn't mean it's some, you know, different place in, in our inner world or our outer, outer world. It could be the habitual mindsets that we're not so used to being close to. But we have this clarity, this pristine clarity of awareness that gets stronger as we develop the practice with continuity and all of the factors of practice begin to get stronger with it and serve that mindful awareness. And so then each of these defilements becomes so clear. And then what happens is there is this deep um, urgency to let go of them. But we're still learning how to do that. We're still learning the skillful means to weaken them to let them be known so that by simple awareness we're not adding a second arrow or we're not um, inculcating more greed, hatred and delusion by going to that moment with like, I don't want this if it's unpleasant or I want this if it's pleasant. So we're learning. It can, venturing beyond what we've known um, can be a scary thing and this is a birth of faith when we really have 
the wherewithal and the conscious intention to open to all of that and not back down. This is real faith in ourselves. This is the birth of faith. So we might even experience faith more powerfully as what we call spiritual urgency. And I bet most of you already know you have this, or if not, you haven't been able to name it yet. Or maybe it's just really developing now. There's a word in the ancient language of Pali um, that describes this deep spiritual urgency. And that urgency comes up because we see over and over again these habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's this urgency to free the mind of those habit patterns. It's like, it's not like I've had enough, I give up, and you walk up away from your mat. And, you know, these times are called folding the mat times. Uh, Rolling up the mat and going home, which is what I talked about a moment ago. But it's the urgency now to just open to them and to develop the skills to do that. And that word in Pali is called samvega. It's spiritual urgency. As we get older, I notice a lot of my um, friends, colleagues, uh, elderly, have that. We're in the Dharma and we we just get this, we just have to spend really the last part of our years to face whatever needs to be faced, to finish the job, as they call it in in the... uh, in the... uh, places that we are with our friends they say it's time for you to finish the job you know one of our senior guiding teachers at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts he quoted something about Samvega his name is Larry Rosenberg he described it in this way Samvega leads to the conversion the freeing of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for what is timeless, vast, and sacred. So in our own unique ways, we feel this, we felt this in ourselves. Maybe there was no word for it. But we keep coming back because we have this urgency. And for some of us, back in the early days, we used to say, our hair is on fire with the Dharma. And it would be like, yeah, get this fire out quick. And so we, we did a lot of things that didn't weren't so worthwhile, like striving too hard and uh, other things, trying drugs and things like that that really didn't get the job done. But anyway, this great spiritual need that we all have is beyond the basic need for survival. So it's this aspiration, not an attachment to a goal. So what I mean by aspiration is it's more like an open-ended journey. It's not like there's some goal to be achieved and we're just going to get there. Because there's this constant and deepening, ever-deepening of the Dharma in our hearts. What um, Temple talked about last night was like even here is a Buddha you know, who's continuing to deepen and strengthen those qualities by the practices that uh, Temple was talking about last night. So along the way, in this open-ended journey, we're really taking care, really, really taking care to just recognize. But Because when we just recognize, meaning to say we just bring simple but profound deepening awareness to each moment, when awareness is very strong, it doesn't add a moment of greed, hatred, or delusion. So you can say, we can say that it is a momentary purification of the mind and the heart. That's why awareness is so, is a powerful part of of our whole practice that is kind of the guiding light for everything else. 
when awareness is there, when it is accompanied by the other six factors of enlightenment, or it's balanced out by the with the five spiritual faculties, which um, uh, James talked about in the very beginning, then mindfulness becomes so powerful that when mindfulness faces, mindful awareness faces whatever the what the experience or the object is, it's so powerful that the the um, and with continuity that greed, hatred, and delusion cannot enter there. So these habit patterns of the mind are not being rehabituated over and over again. It's a moment of purification in the mind. So that's one of the ways that it really works um, on a moment-to-moment level. And of course, we have to have the continuity of the practice in order for it to get that powerful. So this doesn't mean striving, I just want to say again. It's gentle, persevering effort. It's not the striving effort. Gentle, persevering effort. So when we're not feeding these greed, hatred, and delusion factors, then that, uh, those factors lead to confusion and harm in the world and also harm in ourselves. How so? Because every time they're not, um, they're not seen in with awareness. Because awareness sees everything that comes up as uh, in its very deep qualities. You know, the evanescent impermanence that happens. It doesn't see anything as solid in in the moment. It sees the deep freedom that can be there of not selfing around something. So during those times, we're not. Uh, adding to the ignorance and the delusion of the world. And we're not adding harm to our own karmic stream because we're not letting it be replanted in our karmic stream because we react to ourselves and to the world. And that gets the greed, hatred, and delusion gets replanted in our karmic stream and then gets reborn again, comes up again out of habit. We have to face it over and over and over again. So finally, you know, some of us say, enough, enough of this. And we have this deep sense of spiritual urgency. We're not feeding um, those habit patterns. They actually get weakened by mindful awareness and eventually uprooted. So they don't come into the mind stream, even as a seed. So at some time, um, developing this, we see, in developing this, we see that not only are we able with this faith in ourselves, this ability to face these, face these difficult situations, but we're able to let go more and more and more. Not not in a forceful way. It's not that I am letting something go. It's more like there's a seeing, there's an understanding that um, impermanence and not-selfness and the deep understanding of no enduring satisfaction is there. So we don't hold on. We don't even reach out to grasp. It just simply goes on its way. We don't feed it with anything. And at the same time, we're developing the opposite of that. We're developing generosity, that deep letting ability to let go. We're developing unconditional love, that love that can say, you know, we want to be kind to everyone, not just particular beings that we hold more dearly. And the wisdom we, we gain to deal with our inner and outer lives as well. So it's a very dynamic process of awakening these dormant capacities within us and letting go of the ones that don't serve us and humanity well. It's, it's pretty much what some people in the Dharma, some students I've, I know, call advanced common sense when we really understand how it goes. 
So I want to tell a story of a time I was in Burma. I've been to Burma several times. But this was a time, the first time I went to ordain as a nun. And I had been um, wanting for a long time in this life to ordain as a nun. So I had raised children. They were grown already. And I was in my 50s. And um, when I went to Burma, uh, I felt at ease because my my grown children, they were grown enough, could take care of themselves. And the younger one, um, I, I live in a, a kind of very clannish um, cultural Filipino family, takes care of one another. So we're very community oriented, we oriented. So it's it's possible for me to leave like this. So I went to my teacher, I was there when I was there, and I had known him at several other places I practiced at at the United in the United States and in Australia. And he said, um, why did you come here to practice? It's not easy to practice in Burma it's very hot here. The food isn't always uh, good, you know, for Westerners' stomachs. And um, the, the practice here is quite, is, is quite a high bar. You have to wake up at 3 in the morning. You have to be in the hall. They do walking practice in the hall. It's, it's um, made so that there's walking practices on the side and outside the hall, too, nearby. And um, you had to be there and start your walking practice at 3.30. So right after that would be the sitting and the chanting. And then in the dark, we would go to breakfast, to the dining hall, which was also a practice hall. We had to practice formally, eating practice while there. And so it was difficult because it was hot for me. It was hot weather. Even though it was a cool season in Burma, that was quite hot, humid for me. And ordaining as a nun there, I don't know, some of you I know are familiar with that, but um, you wear these layers of robes and, you know, there's a, there's a, um, a shirt that you wear that's kind of has a, a little bit of a high neck to here and then the sleeves come down to here and then it's fitted tight on your, on your body and then there's a, a skirt that is kind of folded over, so it's folded over and it's more layers. And then you wear an inner robe on top of that, and then an outer robe on top of that. And then there's a sash that you wear to signify that you're a daughter of the Buddha. And um, usually this is made out of polyester when people offer you robes. So it felt like I was wearing plastic and I had the hot flashes at the same time. So it was like many times I would say, why did I do this, you know? But it really kind of, um, it presented to me a lot of high bars to practice with. And I had to have a lot of faith in myself. So when he asked me this question, why are you here? I replied, this is my intention. My intention is to continue to purify my mind and heart of these habitual habit patterns and to also um, experience what hasn't been experienced yet in my practice. And when when he answered, it was quite dif- different for me. I, I'd never heard it, him say something like this. He said, you must be willing, you must be willing to invest everything you have in your practice. And I knew he wasn't talking about, you know, money or resources like that because you go there and it's completely free. It's, it's, everything is on dana. The food, being there, even your robes are on dana. Um, people give everything for you to be there. And so I thought about it a little bit and I realized very quickly that what he meant was for me to really tune in to those qualities of mind that I knew that I had already and I'm still developing to be able to invest in that practice because it's it was kind of a high bar of practice. 
And other qualities like humility, like patience, like perseverance, like resolve, forces of goodness, you know, these are the paramis that we speak of in the Dharma. But most of all, I needed the energy of faith. Faith is an energy. It's very different from the seeking of um, the seeking of pleasant experiences. Faith is seeking the good. And it's seeking what is of highest value in our lives as human beings to add to, to give us the um, confidence to reach our highest potential, to reach our most noble potential in life. And so this seeking is not the same as wanting or the craving mind, very different. It's said that faith is regarded as a wise hand that reaches out, it seeks out, and it takes hold of what is truly valuable for us in our lives. It seeks out different things like opportunities to practice, like you all sought that out to come here and made all these various arrangements and sacrifices to do that. It seeks out spiritual friendship and wise counsel. You know, to hear the Dharma from others who might have had the same difficulties, experiences, how they overcame it. Or just having a listening voice to know that I've done it too and I'm, I'm still kind of trying my best. To hear and read the Dhamma, these are opportunities that the faith seeks out. And to practice in this way, this practice of solitude and silence, anything that inspires faith. So in the Dharma, faith in the Pali language has the word sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, sadha. And when you read about um, sadha in the in the Abhidhamma, like what are the qualities of faith? It reads more like a verb than it does like a noun. Because in the place where in the Abhidhamma it describes the characteristic of sada, the characteristic of sada is said to establish faith, to establish faith. So it's a process, you know, to establish faith. And a lot of faith in ourselves so that way we gain trust that we, we can do it. As they say in the Dharma, we need the faith to enter into and to cross the flood, the, cross the flood of opposition. Normally, when we hear this, to cross the flood, it means to be able to withstand, to be with, to have a skillful means to face and to navigate the uh, kilesas, the defilements that come up the various ways that greed, hatred, and delusion express themselves in our minds, in our lives, in the world out there. So that terminology is often used as a way of saying to overcome fear, to overcome resistance, to overcome simply seeking for satisfaction of what we want to overcome simply seeking for all the time pleasant experience, to overcome feelings of inadequacy. So I had quite a bit of that during this time uh, when I was in Burma. A big um, kilesa for me is wanting, wanting my family around me. I get homesick a lot. I thought, you know, to just say when I would go up to the teacher and he would say, "What's come?" We had to report what the what was going on in the primary experience of whatever that was—the breath, the body, and all the other experiences that arise. And I would say, "Homesickness," and I would think the teacher would say, "Oh, you know, homesick. Yes, your family." But he was—he said, "Homesickness is wanting." You know, you just be really like. And wanting to be home, wanting it to be more pleasant. And um, he would really made us find faith in ourselves. I remember Manindraji used to say, when I depend on him too much, you know, he would say, the Buddha solved his problem, now you have to solve yours. 
he 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 wasn't pulling any punches like he would be nice you know and he was very compassionate and everything but no he made me find my own way a lot and so did upandita of course he was very very he was very strict he was known as one of the uh, the fierce you know sayadaws i think i was able to handle that because I was more raised in the Asian way and I, I was just more able to to handle it and sometimes I would just do what I thought was best for me. You know, I wouldn't for example we had to, you know, walk back and forth these long um one hour going back and forth and I I'd get tired, I'd have inflammation in my body here and there. It was painful. So what I did was I would stand at the end of the walking and i would just relax i would just stand there and relax and look at there was a little not a little but quite a bit a big area where water was being gathered it was like a, a small pond or lake and i would just stand there and i would know that i really have to soften the mind a little bit so i'd look out and say seeing seeing pleasant pleasant just a little bit you know to soften the mind and then i would do the bows you know it, it, you would you would bow down with your half of your body on your knees and take refuge in the buddha the dhamma and the sangha each time and my bows would be i take refuge in the buddha and i'd stay there a long time <laughs> and i'd come up again then i'd do another one you know and so i i found ways to to handle that fierceness and he would also one time he would i was saying i it's really difficult i think i'm I, i'd like to do some metta and he said no you must continue with your vipassana cuz he, he didn't want me to avoid facing what i needed to face cuz sometimes metta can do that you know you can go to something that's easy instead of being with something that's hard but i went away and i thought I need to do this. So I did a little metta and I went back to him and I said, "Sedauji, I did some metta." And he said, <laughs> "For myself it was really helpful." And he said, "That's good." <laughs> you know, it was fine. He wasn't as fierce as we thought he was. <laughs> um I know not everybody thought that way, but um anyway, I stuck with it. Lucky thing I had Manindraji. No, I'll tell you the balance of that in a moment. So it gave me opportunities to feel my strength. You know, to to really feel my strength and to use it and not to just, you know, depend on others. I remember I'm just remembering when I was rewriting this today, another one of my retreats with Utejaniya, his family, you know, Utejaniya's part of our whole lineage it's it's just that each one in the lineage presents the practice in the way that they authentically practiced it that that gave them, them their results you know so each one of them has a different way but they're in the same family in the same lineage our grand our grandfather teacher for all of us our great grandfather is mahasi sayadaw so utejini is one of them you know in the same lineage as upandita munindra also his family owned a major business in yangon and before he ordained for life as a monk he was a businessman so in one retreat i was at with him he said um our minds should be like toll gate keepers and i thought where is he going with this you know he said whenever the defilements pass through like fear resistance deep habit patterns we should collect a toll you know that was but with mindful awareness we'd know that they were going through and collect a toll by being aware get the value out of them he would say don't let them pass by without any value so when you can open to them get the value of them he said whether they come through as donkeys or suvs that's what you see a lot in verma get the value out of them so in the dharma there are said to be three areas of faith faith in our teachers those who are sharing the dharma with us faith in the teachings faith in oneself 
So just want to fill out each one uh, individually. So just briefly, faith in teachers, some basic guidelines. Of course, we have to be careful to choose teachers who embody the teachings, just not can talk about them, but can actually, we see that they're living in, an, in alignment with the non-harming precepts and attitudes of mind that um, are part of our practice, part of our uh, lineage. I was intuitively guided to choose teachers who exhibited some balance of compassion and wisdom. So, for example, with Manindra, um, when I first met him, when he first came to America, he was on his way to uh, see Joseph Goldstein, actually, who was um, his student for about seven years in India. And so this was Manindra's first journey to America. And um, I took a, a course with him when he was on the West Coast, and I saw that he really exemplified a lot of kindness and compassion. He was down to earth. He wasn't uh, like being a high kind of a teacher, but he was he was very concerned about everything that, you know, are we comfortable in our rooms? Are we eating enough? Um, one of the things he would say a lot, I know Joseph has said this in Dharma Talks, so I'm giving my permission to say this. Uh, he would say, um, how is your bowel movement? Did you have bowel movement today? <laughs> and he would give you some, you know, Indian things that would help you if you weren't. So, after practicing for Manindraji with, for some years, he suggested that I practice with Upandita. So I saw in Manindraji he had a lot of compassion, a lot of kindness, but he was very learned in all of the scriptures too. Um, if you asked him a question, he would take a long time, uh, as both Joseph and I say in our talks, until the last person left the room, he wouldn't stop answering the question. You know, he would just keep going. Um, so he had a lot to say about the Dharma. I went to practice with Upandita um, after some years of my practice with Manindraji. And he was very strict, known as the energy Sayadaw. You know, just have a lot of energy, keep going, wake up early, go to bed late, have four hours of sleep. But he did... Um, he did inculcate in me to have a kind of energy that helped me keep going, not not force the way. I, I think I got that from him and from Manindra too. So he was quite fierce and his compassion was more in the background. His wisdom was more in the foreground. But he also had this compassion for the dukkha that his students went through and I, he had this kind of fierce compassion that he wanted his students to be um, freed in this life, this very life. He had so much compassion for them that he, he really worked us the way he unfolded in the Dharma, in that same way, which was authentic for him. So... I was. Um, I went to visit him one time when I hadn't seen him for a few years, and I said I, I approached him and said, "Sayadawji, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you." And there was some back and forth between him and the translator there. Uh, and um, when I was leaving, the translator said, "Do you want to know what he said?" when I said, I'm so happy to see you. And I said, actually, I said, I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> but uh, uh, so the translator said, Sedaoji said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. And it was like, yeah, the, because he knew that that was the key to liberation. So at first I wasn't, I wasn't so happy about that. But um, I understood he's coming from that place, you know, and he's the one person in my life that wanted that for me. 
I, n- I don't know anybody, even Manindraji, I never heard it from him, maybe one, but he's a one person in my life who represented that deep spiritual urgency for me and others too. So that's faith in our teachers, fine teachers who exemplify the Dharma that have that compassion that you can get in touch with. Not everybody could get in touch with that compassion I described of Upandita, but um, that you can get in touch with. And the wisdom to show the way. So faith in the teachings. I just um, went over faith in teachers, faith in the teachings. The Buddha would always say, come and see for yourself. Ehipasiko, I cannot do it for you would say in different ways, you have to do it yourself. So the famous um, sutta, the Kalama Sutta, where the Buddha was telling everybody, you have to try it out for yourself. Have faith enough to get the instructions. Try them out for yourself. And if they lead to the good, if they lead to liberation, if they lead to benefit for all, then follow that. But if they don't, then don't follow that. Basically, that's what that sutta said. So faith in the teachers and faith in the teachings. And now faith in oneself. And here I want to talk about the three different kinds of faith. There's blind faith, there's bright faith, and there's verified faith. These are the three different kinds. And you might see where you're putting yourself on the spectrum. And I might venture to guess that it's the last one. At least we're venturing there to understand and to verify uh, this understanding in our own practice. So in a nutshell, blind faith is when we can't trust our own experience. And so we we rely on the experience of others. Why can't we trust our own experience? Because we don't know it. And here in our practice, we're coming to know ourselves. And so we learn that we can't trust what, just put trust in others. We have to put trust in ourselves by knowing ourselves so completely. In blind faith, we can misplace our trust in others. We're content to live vicariously through their accomplishments and not our own. We just admire them. We can agree with them. And we can say, you know, oh, my teacher is so-and-so and I've learned this and that. But are we really understanding it deeply in our own practice, in our own lives, in our own hearts? So here we are doing the opposite. We're not doing this blind faith thing we're really coming to know ourselves. And then <clears throat> comes bright faith. Bright faith is when a person, a reading, or a place inspires us so deeply and illuminates new possibilities for our potential that the faith in ourselves becomes, faith in another is bright, but it kind of shines that brightness on us where we can see the light in our own hearts. We see the brightness, the potential for brightness, and actually feel that brightness ourselves. There's still a degree of dependence. We know we have to have guidance, and uh, we go to the right people, the right teachings for that. And brightness in uh, connection with others is still very important to us. So I had to borrow a lot of faith from my teachers that they had in me in the beginning You know, I didn't have a lot of bright faith. I didn't have so much faith in myself. I wasn't a monastic. I wasn't raising... I was raising children as a single parent, as a householder. But people would tell me stories of Deepama, and she was my bright faith. Because they would tell stories about her, about her practice, about how Manindra would say she even surpassed him in her capabilities. She became a reason for me to have right faith in myself. So I never met her, but I learned a lot about her 
through Manindraji would tell a lot of stories about her. She was a mother. She had become a widow. She went through tremendous suffering in her body. But she had so much faith in the Dhamma and in herself that she could do it that um, she just kept handling what had to be handled. It's as if her faith had to be commensurate to the suffering that she endured in her life. So she had these astonishing capabilities. Um, and when I heard the stories about her, and especially the story that uh, when somebody was saying that, oh, you know, the, I, I don't know if it was about the Buddha was a man or something else about you had to be a man to do this. And she said, I can do anything a man can do in the Dhamma. And she had that kind of, you know, really deep stability in herself. So that was the beginning of faith for me. But then there is this verified faith. And um, where we learn through our own practice, we realize the liberating truth moment by moment. And the peace that can come, even if it's just a moment of peace, through understanding experientially the Dhamma, the Four Noble Truths. So there's some qualities that it takes to support the development of that kind of faith in oneself. And you all have them in one way or another, or you're learning to discover them in yourselves. One is the willingness to venture beyond the familiar, to go to places where it's so difficult, but maybe you can't go there right away, you just have to kind of titrate, touching that place and moving back to a safety, a place of safety. And then kind of getting near it a little bit, touching it, moving back into a, a place of safety. Back to your breath, back to the body, back to hearing. A little metta maybe. And being able to venture a little bit at a time into these unknown, very difficult places. It's said that we need the hum- humility to develop these skills. There's a saying from Trungpa Rinpoche that spiritual awakening is one humiliation after another. If, <laughs> if, you, if you can't have humility, that really true kind of humility, it's kind of impossible. I still have what they call cringing moments, like, oh, you know, why did that happen? How can I do that? You know, I, I just, just kind of force my way through instead of softly, with humility, going through it. Enduring interest and curiosity and not giving up on oneself. So a lot more can be talked about, but know where you're at on this path and know the places where you need to just have a tiny bit more faith in the moment that you can just bend down and pull up your socks maybe or open to that moment. Uh, Just touch it a moment. Get near it. Sometimes I have to say to myself, just come closer. Or just connect. Just briefly. Feel this. Don't just know it. Feel this moment. So a lot of things like that can help. But what are the conditions that really support our, our seeds of faith? And, and this is uh, from the Dhamma. <clears throat> not from, these are not my ideas. The seeds of faith are nourished by virtuous conduct. Virtuous conduct in body, speech, and knowing what's going on in your mind. Knowledge leading to liberating understanding. Generosity. Why? Because it supports letting go. Understanding and respecting the laws of cause and effect. Karma. Kama. So these are the ways of faith. This is a tapestry of faith. Can we, or are we already living into it? I think we are. So I hope you have faith in yourselves. So let's sit for a moment.
let the words just dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.